Father, we confess that this is your day. Uh, We confess that you are a good God, that you are a mighty God. We confess that you have the power to answer prayer, that you are preparing us uh, to be the image of your Son, to be united with him in heaven, living your life. Open that up to us today. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Total Request Live, we uh, started this last week uh, in the early 2000s. um, Carson Daly, who I believe was the Ryan Seacrest of his day, uh, was the host of Total Request Live on MTV, which I never saw um, because I didn't like the music or the idea of MTV. But it was really, really popular. And the idea was that uh, all the people of the United States of America would get together and decide what they thought were the most important uh, videos of the day, music videos, and that those would be displayed for uh, all to see. Well, this summer, uh, for the, re- the remainder of the summer, we're doing Total Request Live here at Coast Bible Church, so if there is something that you would like to hear my opinion on, or Neil's opinion on, you may send an email or talk to us, and we will do our best to address it. And when I say our opinion, uh, ideally what we'll be doing is really God's opinion. Um, so... There's that. Uh, today, uh, we're talking a little bit, we're shifting a little bit to the apologetic side of things. Last week, we talked about the Greek word pistuo, um, and the way it was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Pistuo is the word that tr- typically gets translated as having faith in, or believing, or trusting. Um, this week, uh, we're doing a little more of an apologetic message. Uh, we had a request to talk a little bit about, you know, a defense of the faith, or reasons for the faith. Now, um, I think Neil's going to be addressing some more of these issues later, but what's closest to my heart is uh, the answer to what we call the new atheists. Uh, the new atheists are better and more entertaining than the old atheists uh, because they are evangelical in their atheism. Uh, they don't want to just keep the good news of atheism to themselves. They want to share it with the whole world so that we can all be freed from the oppressive uh, rule of God and live the lives that uh, nothing meant us to live. So that's, uh, that's the new atheists. And today I want to talk about a, kind of an argument that they develop out of uh, three different strands. And those strands, as we talk today, will be uh, prayer, um, and happiness and the good life. The new atheists bring together ideas about prayer, happiness, and the good life to demonstrate that uh, there's clearly no God. Um, I like atheists. I think they're refreshingly honest and fun, um, but also very sad in some ways. And we'll get to see a little bit of that to, about that today. So prayer, happiness, and the good life. The atheist wants us to ask, uh, at the very beginning, a new atheist wants us to ask, does prayer work? And the atheist is going to say no. And we'll talk about that in a second. Then the atheist is going to say, ask us, uh, get us to ask this question, does Christianity prevent us from being happy people? And the atheist is going to say, oh yes, and let me tell you how. And then they're going to say, ask, uh, ask, get us to ask this question, does faith keep us from enjoying the good life? And again, they're going to say it absolutely does. And we're going to talk about those things. So let's first, uh, this is the first thing in your note sheet. It's the powerlessness of prayer. This is something that the new atheists want us to believe, that, that, that prayer is completely powerless. And what's great in their literature now, instead of just uh, saying it's powerless, they actually point to a scientific study. Uh, yes, you might remember in 2006, um, as a result of the funding by the John Templeton Foundation, a 10-year study was published, and uh, what the, uh, the scientists or the, they did is they, they got uh, about 1,600 people who were recovering, convalescing from uh, heart surgery, 
And they told half of these people, um, you may or may not be prayed for. And then they told the other half of the people, you will be prayed for. And then they measured the results. And lo and behold, it turns out that there were no measurable differences between the two groups, people who were prayed for and people who weren't. It was 50-50. There was no statistical uh, change between those who got prayer and those who didn't. And so the atheists, uh, I think that Victor Stengel is one of them, he uh, points out in one of his books, he says, well, we've got proof. 10 years, 1,600 patients, prayer did nothing of statistical value. And therefore, we can know for certain that prayer is powerless. You are talking to an imaginary fairy in the sky. Well, it's not just Victor Stengel. There's also a 2009 Cochrane meta-study reviewed all of the literature, and there really isn't that much. There's about 10 good studies, but reviewed all the literature about the effects of prayer on recovery from illness and came to the same conclusions that our best data seems to indicate that prayer doesn't do anything to help people recover from illness. And so Victor and some of the other new atheists say prayer is pointless. It's powerless. And therefore we should think that there is no God. But it doesn't stop there. The new atheists also note that Christianity can make you miserable. And that's the second thing on your note sheets. Christianity can make you miserable. And how does it do this? Well, it does it by repressing your natural instincts and your desires. It causes guilt. It causes anxiety and cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you believe one thing, um, but your, uh, the evidence uh, seems to go against it. And so it causes this anxiety in, inside of you. And guilt, if you believe that there's a God out there watching you, then when you do things that you think God doesn't like, you feel guilty. You feel anxious. And moreover, it turns out that what... Christianity, among other religions, makes you do is try to change your behavior. And that's hard and it's difficult. And it hurts you. It makes you miserable as you try to become better. And better from what? Is it really that bad that you want to have a lot of money? That you want to have a lot of sex? That you want to do a lot of drugs? Is it really that bad? Well, if there's no God up there to stop you, then no, it's not. It's good for you. It's fun. And Christianity is keeping you from having the fun that you ought to have. Not only is prayer powerless, but Christianity makes you miserable. The last strand in these three strands is living the good life. Christianity prevents you from living the good life. This is number three on your note sheets. And so ask yourself, the atheist says, do your prayers get answered? Has your life improved according to expectations? Have you had to make sacrifices in the things that you want to do in order to remain faithful to God and his expectations? You see, the way that we think our life is supposed to go is that Johnny grows up and he gets into high school and he's the most popular kid in school because he's the the quarterback. And once he finishes being quarterback, he goes on to a state school on a scholarship and he has a great experience there. And then he doesn't quite make the NFL, but he does make some good contacts in college, gets into a great job, so he's able to provide all the things that his sweetheart from high school wants. He marries her, and then they have a whole bunch of kids who are very well behaved, and then uh, they are all successful. And Johnny, at the end of his days, looks back and says, I have everything I've always wanted, and now I'm ready to go. Is that how your life worked out? 
Is that what you thought was going to happen? Is that, in fact, the good life? And if it is the good life, then what about all the prayers you prayed to make that happen? They weren't answered. And in the midst of it, if you were faithful, you, Johnny had to put aside things that he didn't want, or that he did want, but he couldn't do to have that affair, to hoard a little more of that money. If Johnny was in fact faithful, then why didn't he get the good life that he ought to have had? And so the new atheist argument is this. This is in your note sheets. If God is real, then life ought to look much different for faithful believers. And we of all people know this. We have just been to four funerals in the last year of God-fearing saints who went too soon. And if you've been with us, you knew that they were wonderful people, faithful to the very end, and yet they didn't get, what, the perfect send-off? They didn't get the extra year, the extra six months? They didn't get what they should have had. And if God were real, then life ought to have looked much different for them. Well, let's test it, and let's just see if in Scripture... Uh, the new atheist model of how things are is in fact the case. So um, we're going to read just a few verses from uh, Genesis, uh, and we're going to look at a little bit about Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Awesome. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and his nephew Lot went with him. So Abraham obeys, does what God says. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had acquired, and that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. So here's a guy, and he's trying to be faithful. God says, I'm going to do this for you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to do all these wonderful things, he makes these wonderful promises, and Abram obeys and goes. And so what do we expect for him? If you're reading the text, well, you expect, you know, the, thing, the good life, right? Children, prosperity, influence, and power in the region. All the good things that come to people who are faithful to God. But that's not what happens. You see, if you read on for the next four chapters, you find out what happens to him. You find out that he has no child. And so he sires an heir with his wife's maid, Ishmael. He has family strife with Lot, his nephew, and other relatives. Lot uh, runs away from him because of bad treatment. He has economic failure. He lives through a famine. Because of his famine, he has to go on his knees to the Pharaoh of Egypt. And he's so scared of the Pharaoh of Egypt that he pretends his wife is his sister. And the Pharaoh almost takes his wife as his own wife. Because Abram is terrified of what's going to happen to him. This good, faithful man who obeyed the word of God, and this is what he gets. Now, 
Strange, isn't it? Strange. If the new atheists wanted to make the argument, instead of coming up with scientific studies, what they should have done is they should have opened up to Genesis, and they should have showed the story of Abraham and said, See? Look! You think Abram wasn't praying prayers when he was running through Egypt? You think he wasn't begging God to make Lot make different decisions? You think he wasn't begging God for a child all those years? Those, those prayers, what they went unanswered. You think Abram wanted to have a child with his wife's maid? You know, he had to do something that he knew was going to cause problems, but he did it anyway because he thought it was the best that he could do. He was trying to live a good life. He was trying to do everything right, and yet, misery. So the new atheist should have just pointed at Genesis, and maybe not even just just Genesis. I mean, it's not it's not Abraham who's the only guy who has this track record of not having the life that he ought to have had based on his faithfulness. Moses, Moses, wow, he had a great run, constantly being yelled at by the people, frustrated with God, frustrated with them. He hated it so much. He's like, God, I don't even want to deal with these people ever again. I, Moses, and then he dies without even seeing the promised land. David, David finished great. No, he didn't. In fact, things went really, really bad for David. The prophets, yes, the prophets had an awesome run when they were thrown out of the city, when they were executed. Do we need to mention Jesus? Was Jesus not praying? that this cup would be taken from him? And was that prayer answered the way he wanted it to be? Paul. What about Paul? Was he not praying that God would preserve him before the beatings? If you're looking in scripture and you're looking for what? A, answers to prayers that you like. B, license to do whatever you please. And C, easy access to a comfortable, easy life. Then chances are that faithfulness to the God of the Jews and the Christians is not for you. And and the very fact that we can look in scripture, and scripture has no shame about any of this. Scripture just lays it out and says, this is what faithfulness to God looks like. This is it. And that should tell us something. That should tell us something about what the new atheists are trying to get us to believe. That there's something maybe behind the scenes that they're not telling us. Some assumption that they've got that's kind of like a switcheroo. Now look back for a second at that text about Abraham. It says, I will make you a great nation. Awesome. I will bless you and make your name great. Sounds great. And you shall be a blessing. I will, those, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Maybe God's purposes aren't exactly the same as what we think they might ought to be. God's promise to Abraham is going to do something wonderful that he is going to like eventually. It takes a long, long time. But the purpose, the purpose of that blessing is not to make Abraham happy. 
Instead, it is meant to change Abraham from just some guy who gets the stuff he wants in this life into a vehicle for God's gracious blessings for everyone in the whole world around him. And it's not just Abraham. Listen to this, uh, this text in Acts. I, I want to skip through a little bit. Just, just uh, go, go to the very end. But basically Saul, he's called Saul at this time. He's going to become Paul. Uh, Saul is out beating up Christians because uh, he doesn't like them. And then Jesus appears to him and says, stop it. Stop persecuting me. And Saul has this incredible conversion experience. He changes his name to Paul. And then he's, he's blinded and he's not sure what to do. And, and uh, a guy named Ananias is called. He's a Christian. He's called by God to minister to Paul. And Ananias uh, says to, to God, who's, who's talking to him, says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, Paul, about how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. He's a bad guy, God. Why do you want me to help him out? And then the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God doesn't call Paul and answer his prayers in order to make him happy. The calling of Christ isn't even about Paul at all. I wonder, I wonder what the new atheists would think if we, they heard God is not that interested in making you happy. God is interested in saving the world. You look at the new atheists and, you, and you, the three strands, you know, the powerlessness of prayer. God doesn't answer prayers the way we want him to. Christianity makes us miserable when we have to deny ourselves whatever it is that we want. Christianity prevents you from living the good life. Well, each of those things shares something in common. It's an assumption that what life is about is personal happiness and expressive individualism. Expressive individualism is the belief that what our life is about is looking deeply into our souls to discover who we really are and then sharing that joyfully with the world who will then see it and love it too and affirm it. Now, if that sounds crazy to you, it's because you're being honest with yourself. Because when you look down deep, you know how corrupt you are. You know how sick you are. And you know that if you showed that to the whole world, not the least of whom might be your spouse, they would run. Run. The scriptures deny the premise. The new atheists are nothing more than the latest expression of the dark side of Western culture. Their argument only works if you assume that one of the fundamental lies of this culture, that your personal satisfaction in life is the most important thing in the world, is true. You buy that, their argument's got teeth. You read the Bible, and you can be set free. You see, Christians, we don't claim that our citizenship is here. We don't claim that our... our, our 
everything that's awesome is right now in this life. No, no, we claim that our citizenship is in heaven. Listen to Paul in Philippians. He says, brothers and sisters, become imitators of me and watch those who live this way. You can use us as models. And as I have told you many times, and now say with deep sadness, many people live as enemies of the cross. Their lives end with destruction. Listen to this. Listen to this. And tell me if you don't hear the new atheists. Their God is their stomach, and they take pride in their disgrace. Because their thoughts focus on earthly things. But brothers and sisters, our citizenship is in heaven. We look forward to a savior that comes from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, listen to this, this is key. He's going to transform our humble bodies so that they're like his glorious body. He's going to transform us to be like him. That's going to be important in a second. And so we know this. We know that what we're supposed to say to the atheist is like, yeah, it's okay for us to be miserable now because when we finally get to heaven, then we'll have all the stuff that we want. Once we get to heaven, you know, it's, it's diamonds, jewels, and Ferraris, and uh, I don't know, steak, whatever it is that people think is awesome. Well, the new atheists, they're not stupid. In fact, they follow a guy named Feuerbach and a guy named Marx uh, from the 18th and 19th centuries who've heard this before, who've heard that, and they, and they know, they're like, if you guys could just think it through, you would understand that all this heaven talk, it's just wish fulfillment. You know, you're a peasant, so you live this terrible life now, but you think, oh, if I can just hold on, I'll finally have the, the Ferrari I wanted and a whole bunch of slaves to put grapes in my mouth. I just got to hold on until I get to heaven. They know, they know that that's what you're going to say, and and they say, get, get it through your head. This is just fantasy, people. And then Karl Marx digs it deep. He says, not only is this fantasy, but he says this. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. You may, remember, you may know this quote. It is the opium of the people, or the opiate of the masses. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is a demand for their real happiness. See, Marx has it figured out. He's like, this is just a fantasy, and if you can see that it's a fantasy, then you'll change your life to achieve all of the things that you want. The masses will rise up and throw off their capitalist oppressors or whatever and bring a utopia into the world. And that's, that's the only problem. Religion is blinding you. You're, you're, you have all this imagination of your grapes and your slaves and your Ferraris and your steaks, and that's keeping you from getting them now. Because, gee, you deserve it. Let's skip forward. He says this, The criticism of religion disillusions man so that he will think, act, and fashion his reality, this reality now, like a man who has discarded his fantasies, his illusions, and regained his senses. Listen to this. So that he will move around himself as his own true son. Religion is only the illusory son which revolves around man, as long as he does not revolve around himself. That heaven, that fantasy, if you could just shake yourself out of that, then, then you would realize that the real point, the real, this is all you get, and you need to just focus on this right here, and just, and just fulfill it as best you can. And if that means killing some people, awesome. If that means throwing off the chains, the shackles that bring you down, good, good. Whatever it takes to get it so that you're revolving around the real son, not the S-O-N son, the S-U-N son, the son that is yourself.
Life's hard. The hope of heaven keeps us from dwelling on it too long and gives us some comfort in the face of conditions that appear unchangeable. Marx's whole point is that instead of deferring our hope to some fantasy in the sky, we should take up arms and demand paradise by instituting a utopia now. But again, there's a problem, namely that Marx read the Bible but missed some really key points. Listen to a couple of these uh, passages. This is uh, from Ephesians. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Listen to this. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. So love the way Christ did where he loved us and gave himself for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling aroma. Later in the same chapter, he says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. A theme. Christ loves and gives himself. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and without blemish. He loves, he gives himself to change us. To change us into what? This is from Romans 8. Paul again. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your destiny is to be like Christ. Christ, the one who loved and gave himself. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If we listen to the New Testament, we see that our destiny is to be like Christ, who is the image of the invisible God. And Christ is described how in the Gospels and how in the New Testament as being fundamentally at the core of himself, essentially self-giving, self-emptying. Christ is absolutely for the other. He's wholly obedient to God and 100% directed towards the well-being and the salvation of us. He doesn't hold back in selfishness. His glory is his commitment to self-abandonment. And that, friends, that is what we are destined to be like. So if you thought, if you thought that when you got to heaven, it was... Ferraris and grapes and fanning and slaves. No, 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 no. You're going to be like Christ, who is himself God. You will be utterly and completely self-giving, self-emptying. And you will find in that that you are finally who you are and who you were meant to be always. Heaven's not a place of wish fulfillment, Marks. It's a place of God fulfillment. It's where we're finally and completely Christ-like. Selfless, altruistic, others directed under the whole and complete obedience of the Father. Everyone present in heaven will mimic the inner life of the triune God. Think about how God works in each person. Each person of the the Trinity is eternally giving to the others. So the Father gives glory to the Son, who obeys the will of the Father, By surrendering to the power and guidance of the Spirit, which results in greater glory for the Father, 
who lavishes it on the Son, who obeys the Father's will in total surrender to the power and guidance of the Spirit, which results in the greater glory of the Father. And you can see how this works. It's over and over giving and giving and giving and self-emptying. And in that, every person is made glorious the way they ought to be. It is only an utter self-abandonment that we are found at all. Heaven is quite literally the opposite of what the new atheists imagine it to be. And the reason for that is that their imagination is darkened. It is darkened by the corrupting sin of limitless self-love. Because they have decided that they will be their own true son. Scripture's assumption, this is your notes, is that life is about being informed to the self-giving image of Christ. Now, uh, this is not how you're going to win your argument with your new atheist friends. It's, it's not going to work. I've done this n- a number of times, and uh, I can tell you from personal experience, this is what's going to happen. So, so you're, like, you're like, no, 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 dude. The universe is fundamentally about us being changed into completely self-giving, self-emptying people. And there, the first thing is, I mean, it's a moment of shock, because they bear, however distorted it is, they bear the image of God. And so there's something about the beauty in that that strikes the heart. Hopefully you're feeling it a little bit as well, that you're struck. What could it really be that the universe is 100% cross-shaped, that our destiny is to be truly self-giving, Christ-like? What a world that would be if it mimicked the eternal life of God. And that's the end? So the first thing that you do, ah, whoa, that is not what I expected. That shock, that beauty, Take them back a little bit. And the second thing they're going to do is have contempt. They'll be like, ugh, really, please. It's that fantasy stuff against nonsense. The world's not like that. Everybody knows it. It's never going to be like that. And then the third part, the third reaction, and this is what's going to hurt, is they're going to look at you and say, you're a hypocrite if you believe that. And that has fangs because it's true. You are. We are. We're hypocrites. We believe that our end, our destiny, is to be completely, utterly self-giving. And yet, it's true, even for someone as holy as I am, there's a little bit of selfishness left. Just. And so when somebody who knows me well, and your new atheist friends will know you well, when they see you tell them that the universe is about self-givingness, they're going to look at you and be like, you don't believe that. If you did, you'd be a different person. Now, this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to say, so get less selfish. I'm not going to do that. Um, I trust, I know that everyone here um, is working on that. What I'm here to tell you is that you don't need to answer that. You don't need to win the hypocrisy argument. In fact, if you try, you'll lose. What you need to understand is not that you've got to win the hypocrisy argument. You've got to understand where it comes from. Trust me, every new atheist is desperate to believe in the heaven that Christianity preaches. They're as desperate for it as you are. But the cost is too high. The cost of surrendering to that vision 
of who God is and what the world is. It's very high. It's very high, especially if you've been your own son for so long. Especially if you think about all the things that make you happy that you might have to give up. Especially if you worry that the good life that you envision for yourself and your family might be at risk. The hypocrisy claim is not an attack on you. It's self-defense of a heart that has been pierced and is scared to death of the truth. So with your new atheist friends, it's the same as it's always been. It's love. Be generous, be kind. You don't have to win a shouting match with them, um, either in person or online. It's, not gonna, it's only going to degenerate. Instead, instead, offer up the vision of the beauty of the self-giving, self-emptying Christ who is the image of the invisible God. And that, friends, is argument enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you for scripture. We thank you that it's surprising that it does not bend uh, to the arguments of the world. God, we pray that we will be people who don't set out to win arguments, but instead set out to become the people you've called us to be. Conform to the image of your self-giving Christ. We look forward to the day, God, when we will be a part of your life, your divine life, in which in self-emptying we are made whole and full, exactly as you've designed us. God, let us anticipate that with renewed effort, with a renewed desire to follow the guidance and power of the Spirit, to be like the one you sent to show us what love is, to give himself for us. In whose name we pray, amen.